Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Avid Kahl, and I talk about how you can start, run, and sell a bootstrap business. This episode is called Preparing for the Sale from Day One, Getting the Documentation Right. Let's get started. And I put on my most animated voice because I don't think documentation is a topic that people love, so I'm going to try and make it more interesting. But I can tell you one thing. If you get this right, a lot of good things will happen. So let's talk about business documentation today. Yum, yum. Before any acquisition can happen, many, many prerequisites need to be in place. And there will be an extensive due diligence process. Usually, uh, it's going to be buyer side due diligence, right? That's the procedure of the acquirer making sure that everything is in order with the business that they want to acquire, your business. And it's a detailed investigation and making sure that everything you claimed and promised about your business is actually true. Now, that's the goal of this. And if you want to sell your business, you kind of want this to work pretty well in your favor. So you can prepare for this and you can prepare your company for this process to happen as smoothly as possible. And you do this by following a few principles as you run your business. And I don't mean like as you run your business in the last couple of weeks before you sell it, but as you run your business from day one. And because if you need to scramble to get everything ready for the due diligence process just days before it starts, you'll add a lot of extra work at a time when you're already under twice the workload. You'll have to sort through a huge number of documents and conversations and all kinds of things that you didn't even look into before and keep your business running at the same time where it's probably at its highest customer count and at its lowest employee count compared to how you would uh, do it if you had more money or if you had hired more people. You know, it's like the most stressful time of your business is always today. So if today then also has the second component where you have to give complete insight into your business, well, it might be a bit stressful. So you can prepare for this. And Selling the company can require a lot of work if you're unprepared. It can be surprisingly easy and quite painless if you structure your business and the operations as if you intend to easily hand it over one day or any day. And this is the moment when building the company in the build-to-sell way, as described by John Warlow and by me and Zero to Sold, pays off. And it truly pays off if you built your company in a sellable way. Because with the automation and the documentation efforts that you will have put into your business to make yourself as replaceable as possible, an acquirer will take a look into your business and he, they will see a well-structured and easy-to-transition company. They will see how easily replaceable you are. And that is good. So there are a number of steps that I have found particularly helpful, which led to the successful sale of our startup, Feedback Panda, And I'm going to talk about them today. So we're going to start with document location. It all starts with having all your relevant documents and resources securely stored in some sort of cloud-based data storage, such as Google Drive or Dropbox or Box or whatever. This allows you to access your own documents from anywhere, which is important for some reasons that may go beyond the business as usual. And it makes it easy to deliver access to the storage, the service itself, when you sell. Because many businesses will have their own document cloud solution, so allowing them to integrate all of your business documents into their systems rather than manually importing everything is quite attractive. And I say that having your business documents accessible um, in, in the cloud is useful in other situations. Honestly, 
I personally did not have this experience, but I have talked to people who had who were traveling to the United States. Like, oh, it's always the the fun country to travel to, at least to the the whole TSA and the, the border security part. And people were asking them, what do you do for business? Or what do you do for a job? And I was all self-employed. Well, how, prove it. <laughs> if you're standing there with your luggage and you just come from like a 12-hour flight and you didn't sleep, it's kind of hard to give a cohesive story of how you build a bootstrap business that you only run yourself that has like a couple hundred customers and that pretty much nobody has ever heard of. So having Dropbox on your phone, having your business, um, the notarized business foundation documents there and being able to quickly show this, that can actually help you in situations that are not related necessarily to the operations of your business. And it's generally useful to have access to all the relevant legal documents for your business wherever you are, particularly when things are not going the way that you want them to go. So if there's if there's a problem, if you get sued and you're on vacation, or if you have a customer complaining about something and you need to show them some sort of, I don't know, proof of a of a, some purchase that you made, or you have a, like a service provider that claims you didn't pay them, but you have the invoice, you know, all these kind of things, all these documents. And I don't just mean like the foundation documents and your, your bank account agreement, but also just every single invoice and every single um, transaction should be in a cloud-based data storage that you can access from anywhere. Just going to make this potential opportunity of needing it a non-problem. And Having said that, you will also need to structure that storage in a way that makes it clear what each document is, what it's for, and who may need to use it. Because we're talking about the acquisition readiness, right? So you will need to make sure that people understand when they look into this, oh, yeah, this is for me, this is for somebody else, this is for this team, and this we won't need, and you know all these little things. Using extensive naming conventions is quite useful, so you want to keep yourself and any future owner to be able to find relevant documents quickly. So don't just call it invoice. Call it the invoice of the service name. I don't know, like Stripe invoice or Stripe tax invoice June 2020, something like that. And keep your essential assets, such as logos and social media templates, in that storage too. Ideally, all your non-code assets are securely locked up in the same storage device. Because the whole idea of the acquisition is to hand over a Google login and a password. And they log in with that, they get into Google Drive, and they have access to everything. Right, that's the easiest way of transitioning your business is to not even hand over the Google login, just hand over the one password vault login where they can find all the logins to all the services that you have. So that's important, and it brings me to the next point: um, account separation. We're going to talk about two kinds of account separations here, and I think I, I kind of talked about this last time as well. But I'm going to go uh, on the podcast. I'm going to go into detail. Keep your business and personal financial accounts separate. This starts with bank accounts. If you want to make sure you have a flawless separation between your private funds and the funds of your business, get a business bank account as soon as you can, maybe even before launching your business. While this will incur some fees in most cases, it's also good practice and it will protect you from diminishing your personal accounts uh, in case something goes wrong with your business. Liability is a big thing. And if you are liable for for anything that happens to a business and your personal bank account is currently attached to it in some way, there might be a risk that your personal funds are going to be yeah, used for whatever. So depending on what legal form your business takes, you will have to have, you will be required to have such a separation anyway. 
and that is because of liability. If you don't exercise caution from the beginning, any audit of your books will raise concerns in some jurisdictions, and that can lead to bigger audits and hefty fines. And if an acquirer purchases your entire business, they also acquire this particular risk. So you can prevent this from having an impact on the purchase price by just ensuring that the personal and business records are cleanly separated from the start. And this may be the most important thing to get right from the beginning. You can always untangle usernames and passwords at a later point, but a transaction that hit the wrong account and was taxed differently than it should have been cannot be reversed easily after the fact. So let's talk about the other thing, the more easy part here. So the service account separation. It's also recommended, and I highly recommend it, that you keep your service account separate. Create a separate Google account for your business and use that to log into the services that you use for your companies using login with Google, the OAuth2 kind of login method, or use your business email and a strong password. And use obviously use a different password for every single service, but I um, hope I don't need to tell that to people because that should be standard now, right? Use very strong, highly randomized passwords, use them in a password manager and use different passwords for every single service. Keep all the login details in a separate one password vault or whatever password manager you use and keep only logins and secure notes related to your business in that vault. That way, when you hand over your business, all you need to do is to invite your acquirer into the vault and all relevant credentials will be available to them immediately, no questions asked. And also for you, it's great because you have this one place where all of your business information lives. So if you um, sign up for a new service, the first thing you do is just put the username and the password in to your password vault. And you will never wonder what username or password you used because if you train yourself to do this, the data will always be in the correct place. And in the beginning, you will likely have just one email address, like first name at yourdomain.com, right? I had arvid at feedbackpanda.com or something. And now I have arvid at thebootstrapfounder.com. And mostly because you don't need another, but also um, because if you're using Google accounts, you will pay per account. So you will probably try to keep the amount of email addresses that are separate accounts uh, quite low. But I recommend at least making an alias like services at yourdomain.com and logging into services using email and password whenever possible. So you kind of, um, the emails still come to your account, but the login credentials are different. The convenience of logging in with your founder account could be alluring in the beginning, but just like with your Mac accounts, it will pay off to have everything separated from any account that's linked to you as a person when you get acquired. Because nobody wants to log in with some random name that they don't even know because they came to the private equity company that acquired your business years after you sold it. And now they have to figure out which email account to use. But they don't even know what your name is because they've never met you. So having something like admin at or services at or logins at something like that will be significantly helpful, um, more helpful than using your personal login. And I know that this is not the most important thing, but honestly, if you do this and you communicate this to your acquirer, this signals something. This signals that you actually thought about these things. And an acquirer that is sure that you have thought about stuff is an acquirer that is going to pay you more money and you run, you will run into less problems, much fewer problems with them. So think about that. And Let's talk about documentation. I kind of led up the, the whole conversation with um, how documentation isn't fun to most people. It also isn't really fun to me, it, but I, I let, let's maybe say it wasn't fun to me. Once I understood 
the purpose of business documentation and how incredibly empowering it can be both for the acquisition and for the operation of your business. And I've talked about standard operating procedures before, then you will maybe change your perspective on documenting because it's important to document everything, even how you're documenting things. I don't think there's a way to over-document when it comes to something as important as the inner workings of a business. And superfluous documentation can be ignored if it's not needed, but there's no way to reconstruct what the original founder of the business did or meant or wanted to do when there's no trace of any document or instruction. So if you underdocument, you will have questions lingering that you may need to answer randomly at random times, very likely in moments when you don't have time to do it. And if you overdocument, well, then people find everything they need and the thing that they don't need, they can ignore. They're not going to tell you, hey, I just read this. I don't need it, right? They're just going to delete it or they may just ignore it. So it's better for you to overdocument. And I recommend heavily because not only did it work for Feedback Panda, but it seems to work for a lot of businesses, write an extensive operations manual from day one. And if you're at date 120 of your business and you don't have one, write an extensive operations manual on day 120 of your business. If you do something more than once in your business, write a standard operating procedure for it. And again, listen to the podcast episode that I uh, recorded on SOPs and standard operating procedures and how to do it and how to find one that works for your team, how to update them and all this kind of stuff. I'm going to put the link in the show notes. It'll be great for transitioning your business over to your successor. And successor means either somebody you hire in your own business while you still own it to do your work or the acquirer, right? The person or the business that acquires you and the person that you then hire in that business for that business and train to run the business after you've sold it. And even the smallest tasks will need to be mentioned or explained at some point. And creating an SOP as soon as you're done with a new task will make sure it won't be forgotten. If you answer a question in your customer service tool, turn it into a knowledge base article and link that in your operations manual. That's that's such a, I wouldn't call it a hack because it's a procedure, it's a strategy, but it's so powerful to answer a question once and then turning it into like a meaningful article with screenshots and maybe a little video or just an explanation, a couple lines of text and a picture and have it available for every single person that is going to ask this question in the future. That, if you do this for every question you get, eventually the kinds of questions you will get repeating themselves, obviously, you will be saturating the work that you need to do to respond. Like You will have answers for everything. And the more advanced knowledge-based systems will integrate with your customer service chat system, like Intercom does, and suggest articles when they detect certain search terms. Example for us, people always ask, how do I edit a student? Because a student was a, a record in our uh, Feedback Panda teacher student management system, right? So people wanted to know, how do I edit this? I, I don't know how. And there was a little edit button that people may not have found that easily, but most people did, some people didn't, and those would ask. So we had an article, how do I edit my students? And we had a screenshot with an arrow pointing to the little button. And we had a paragraph of text. If you want to edit your student, click the little button next to it. It will open, blah, blah, blah. You know, this, this kind of stuff, really easy and showing people what to do. And 
if people would ask, uh, just the sentence like, I want to edit my students, but I don't know how to do it. Intercom would pick up on the edit my student part and suggest the article. And then people would click it, they would find their problem, and then Intercom has this kind of, did this solve your problem question? And they would say yes. And the great thing about this, this whole conversation did not appear on our radar. It did not bling me out of bed at three in the morning with an Intercom message, somebody has a question. It did not even interrupt me while coding because Intercom is smart. They suggest the articles. They wait with the notification for the Intercom um, dashboard for the, the customer service members. They just wait for a couple minutes, I guess, for people to click on it and see if that resolves the problem. And only if it doesn't resolve the problem, do they pull you in as a customer service person. And that is extremely helpful because... Again, if you answer all questions that people ask with an article that then gets automatically suggested in the future, by the hundredth question that you have turned into a knowledge base article, you will not get many new questions anymore because people usually ask the same questions. And you can, through Intercom, also figure out how many people ask those questions and how often they ask them and then kind of use this in your own feature prioritization um, meetings or whatever you do to figure out, okay, how and where do we need to work on our product to make people ask fewer questions? So it's really, really cool. This will save you countless hours of customer support time. And particularly if you're a solopreneur or a small team, this means your time. And having the documentation in place will be a great training opportunity for your acquirers, customer service agents, because it gives you the opportunity to, to gauge what types of problems your customers may experience. Right? And you can tell them, and you can easily communicate this. And handing over such a document will always almost be like a franchise. And that's kind of the, the trick here, because if you read the, the book, The, the E-Myth by Michael Gerber, you will find that this is the whole point. Right? He describes the entrepreneurial myth, which is um, the myth that if you're technical enough, you can build a business, and that's wrong. He says you also need to be a manager and a visionary. But that's just one part. The second part is, well, now that you know that, how can you build a great business? And that's if you treat it like a franchise. And if you get to this point that you have like a, a business manual that you could just like, give somebody else and say, well, build the exact same business again. And they could. Now that's the gold standard, even though that doesn't exist anymore. But you know, the go that is where you want to get. That is what you want to accomplish. The new owner will know exactly how to deal with all the parts of the business, every single one. They can immediately start running it and train their employees to take over the critical functions. And the more do you document, the faster you can be replaced. And being replaced is the goal. It should be your goal while building a sellable business from the beginning, because if you can replace yourself, well, then you can just hire somebody for X amount of dollars to do your work in any given month, and they will create 2x or 4x the amount of value for you. So all of a sudden, you can completely remove yourself from the business. That's also a thing that uh, is suggested in the book, The E-Myth, which I heavily recommend. You can find a, a little review that I wrote about it on um, the bootstrapfounder.com slash bookshelf. I think I, I have a bootstrappers bookshelf there where I suggest a lot of interesting books and I've reviewed a couple of them. And that's in one of the top five uh, books that I always recommend is the E-Myth because it suggests building up this kind of fake company uh, organizational chart. But they could build up a futuristic org chart for your business. In like five or 10 years in the future, how would you want your business to look? 
if you would structure all the different kinds of jobs into individual positions, you'd have this org chart. And we did this for Feedback Panda. I think we had 47 different positions. That like SEO, um, I don't know, manager. We had software engineer front end, software engineer back end, database administrator. And you know, all these little jobs that I did by myself in one person, we had them laid out in an org chart and we had like structures, team leads and all this kind of stuff. We had 47 positions. And there was, there was one position that um, Danielle held, obviously being the CEO of the business. I held the CTO and the chief, I don't know, like, operations you know these all little fake um positions in the business but above the ceo was a big line and that's what the emeth book suggests and above that was owner and that is a position in your business too like a stakeholder shareholder that's who you are as well and honestly if you are a solo founder and you have 47 different positions well you're going to do all of them you're going to be there in 47 positions but the 48th one owner is also going to be you and the whole goal of the business is to remove yourself from number 47, number 46, number 45, and all these little things until it's just you as a CEO. And then maybe you can even replace yourself as a CEO. So you hold zero of those 47 positions, but you're still the owner of the business. You get the dividends, you get um, whatever kind of monetary payouts you want. You don't have to work in the business anymore. You now can work either on the business or in another business. And that is the goal being able to replace yourself. Building a sellable business is acting in any capacity that makes you more replaceable. And that is the goal and documentation will get you there much faster. I've written about this topic and many more, obviously, both about acquisition and all the steps that lead you to build a sellable business in my book, Zero to Sold. You can purchase that from Amazon and Gumroad, and you will find out more about the book on zerotosoldbook.com. Thank you for checking it out. Today, I want to respond to a few questions that were sent in by listeners. Hi, Arvid. This is David from Remake. I have a question about if you build a product from scratch and you know it takes a couple of years to build, and it's this really big idea, and it solves your own you know issues, your own use cases really well, um, but you didn't validate it with an audience ahead of time. Uh, how do you go about validating it and go about uh, communicating it to people when it's you know such a, such a big idea or such a new idea and you're just a solo founder? Um, I would be very curious to know how you would tackle that. Okay, thanks. Hey, David. Thanks so much for the question. That is an interesting one, and I like the way you phrased it. Like, you built a product for years and hadn't validated it. I would wager that at this point, this is not necessarily a product just yet. It is a tool for yourself mostly, right? It's something that you need and it will be turned into a product by actually fitting it to the audience that you want to sell it to. And the, the question here is, do you want to take what you have right now and push it into a market, stuff it into some place where you don't even know if people are going to buy it or not? Or are you going to take what you currently have and find the people that really need the problem solved that this might tackle and then look into what they actually need and customize your product towards that? Obviously, trick question. The second part is what I would recommend. But the, the whole point here is it's kind of hard for um, somebody who built something that they really needed to look at it and say, this might not be perfect for other people. 
because it definitely is perfect for you, right? It's something that you built for your own needs. It's something that you built for your requirements, and it's something that works for you. And now you hope that there's other people out there that it also works for. And I see this a lot. A lot of founders built that way because we are product driven. We, as um, technical people, we see things in the world that are wrong and we build a product to solve them. It's just how we work. That's how we were trained. And that's perfectly fine. But for a business, you need to, you might need to approach this a slightly different way and backtrack a little bit. So the product you currently have might not be the product that you're actually going to be selling to your audience. Even though it took years to build, it might take a little longer to make it It's just different enough to actually fit the expectations of an audience. And the question here that you have is, where is my audience, I guess? And how do I get there? How do I find them? And then how I co- do I communicate what I have with them? And I think the most important part is to actually make sure that you are really solving the critical problem for a discernible and quantifiable audience here. And I know it's it's hard to do this in, in a backtracking kind of way, right? With a product already existing. Because I usually recommend find an audience that exists somewhere out there, embed yourself and figure out the critical problem, then try to find a solution to the critical problem, and then implement that solution in a way that fits their workflow and that exists in the medium that they use. Right? Some people use SaaS medium, the SaaS medium, some people need something else, a mobile app or whatever. And that really then depends on all these steps that came before. So if you now start with a product that you already have, backtracking kind of means figure out what solution this is and to which problem is this a solution and who has this problem. That is kind of hard in retrospect because you need to fit your existing stuff onto a more amorphous kind of market that may or may not exist but it probably does. So depending on what you've built, I would suggest really figuring out what problem does this solve. And it solves a problem for you. So you can be pretty clear about that. And having that problem defined, I would look into the audiences that have this problem. And just there's probably going to be a lot of them. Because even if you built a tool for software engineers, or for marketers, there's like software engineers who like work on backend stuff, for front end stuff, or, or quality assurance people, or who work in like architecture. And then marketing, there's there's people in social media, or people in print, or people in interactive interaction design. There's so many different kind of sub audiences that for some, and that's the crucial point, this problem will be more critical than for others. Now you can always niche down in a more generic audience into these specific sub audiences. And the criticality of your problem compared to the other problems that they face will be different. One example that I have here, I guess, that makes it more clear is monitoring software for servers. Obviously, this is a tool for software engineers, right? That to, to keep like ping them or at least these SaaS services that just consistently check if your service is still online. But it is obviously more a problem for an infrastructure engineer and maybe a backend engineer than it is for a frontend engineer. And it may be a much bigger problem actually for a full stack engineer, a solopreneur who's building everything themselves because they need to have something like this in their toolkit, no matter what language they use, no matter what service they use, right? They need to make sure that the, the product is working and it's uh, reliably um, available out there. So in all of these different sub-audiences, you will find that your problem that you solve is more critical to some than it is to others. And if you do some research on this, you can rank these groups. 
you can find these sub-audiences and rank them for criticality. And the more and the higher your problem appears in the list of critical problems, the better this is going to be an audience for your tool or for your product. And then that's the next step. And um, I kind of want to bring in another question here because I feel this one works in tandem with yours. So let's listen to another question. I'm going to respond to both of you with the same advice. Hey, Arvid, first of all, great initiative you're having. I think it's cool that you're taking questions on the podcast. So my question is regarding the problem validation phase where I'm actually in at the moment. I'm trying to find a lot of prospective customers or people from my target market. And I've run through friends and family and have a couple of contacts, but I would like to have a really high number of people I'm talking to, like 10, 20, 30 plus. And I don't have a big social media following. So what is your advice on finding a lot of prospective customers without actually knocking on the door of friends and families and without having a big tribe or social media following? Thanks a lot for the answer. See ya. Bye. Hey, Jesse. Thanks so much for the question. It is going to be a complicated thing to talk to people who are not really ready to talk to you yet and who don't even know you exist. Right, So not having a large following and not wanting to annoy the people around you, that kind of leaves you with very little options. But there is a way to do this. And there is a way to reach an audience organically without feeling like a fraud, without even like advertising to them much. And that is just embedding yourself in that community. And I, I've got to have to say this right from the beginning. This is not going to be a hack. This is not going to be fast. This is not going to be something that you can do within a day and then you have access to hundreds of people or that you have access to uh, like dozens of trustworthy first beta users or anything like this. This is going to take a while. And it really depends on your involvement and how long this is going to take. But the point is, if you have a community of people or if you have an audience that you want to sell to or that you want to help, which is, I guess, the more important part, the selling is a later result of wanting to empower people, then you really only have to do one thing, and that's to find where they hang out. It's to find out where they where they communicate, where this kind of group, where this kind of tribe that you may not be part of yet, but you know that they exist, because otherwise, why would you have built something for them, right? The moment you, you find where they hang out, this could be Facebook groups, it could be Twitter, this could be forums. Um, the, the, the easy example is always to say, well, I want to sell something to indie hackers or I want to sell something to software developers who want to build a business. And th the name is, is already right there. The Indie Hackers Forum is a community like this, right? Or Twitter is a community like this. Or now, I guess, for no-code people, like make a pad or you know, make, make a log. Like all these kind of communities, they already exist. And there are a lot of Slack groups. There are a lot of web forums. There are a lot of Facebook groups, Twitter. There's LinkedIn groups even. There are a lot of communities and you just really have to find a couple of them. And once you've found them, do not start advertising your product. Do not ask for people to do something with you or to, to buy your product, to check out your product. Most of these communities are tribal in nature and the tribal community will defend itself against intrusion. Like if you are an intruder, if you come from, if you're foreign, right? If you are not part of the community and you try to make them do something, you are going to be out of that community very quickly. The most um, yeah, prevalent example for this for me 
is always Reddit. Like Reddit is extremely defensive of their little subreddit communities. So if you go into one, you join it, and on the same day you post something about your product, you put a link to your website in there or something, you're kicked out of that subreddit immediately. Like in many subreddits, that's the case, particularly the entrepreneurial one, because they understand that people want to do marketing, right? They're not easily fooled by, oh yeah, I've written about this kind of stuff. So don't start engaging them on this kind of level. Like I said, it's going to take a while. And what you want to do in a community like this is not to sell them something. You actually want to become part of the community. The idea with these wonderful tribal communities, often in the hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people who hang out at one spot, is it's like you, you can observe. It's like a safari through the industry. You can sit in your little car and you can just see how these people interact. And they don't won't notice you because you're just lurking, right? You're just listening. You're just reading what they're saying. And you can figure out so many things from just observing that you, you would have destroyed this kind of peaceful communication between people by putting in your marketing content. So what I recommend is just really observing the community, looking for how they communicate, which is important because you'd want to speak the language that they speak to feel like you're part of the tribe, part of the community. Then to slowly begin interacting with people. And by interacting in the beginning in particular, I mean responding, giving opinion, sharing knowledge without sharing content that you just created for marketing, right? Let's, let's imagine you are going to serve the indie hacker community because just the, the easiest thing that's most relatable, both, I guess, for anybody's listening here and for me to talk about, you start responding to people's accomplishments. You congratulate them. You ask for how they did certain things. Then you start responding to people asking for your opinion. And indie hackers, there's always critique my landing page kind of stuff. This is content that is pretty valuable to give your opinion on because not only will it be helpful to sharpen your own skills at communicating within the community, but it will also be helpful to the people actually act, asking the question, right? They will now see your name and the text you've written, either critical or supportive, in the best case is both of them. And then they will remember your name as somebody who actually gave them a valuable and honest opinion. And you continue doing this you continue responding and giving your opinion and sharing your knowledge. And at some point you can start creating original content, just telling people, okay, I did this in my business and it kind of didn't work out. Or here's something I learned about SEO or here's something I learned about marketing. And I would still be cautious about dropping links to your blog or your, your content marketing website. I would still in the beginning for maybe a couple days, if not weeks, just really talk within the community, create content that only exists within the community. Because this establishes you as an expert that also values the community, right? If you are in a tribe and you try to throw in content from somewhere else that gets people to leave the tribe to consume it, it it's, it's kind of a disruptive affair. You're doing something that it disrupts the cohesion of the tribe. But if you were to work, I don't know, within Indie Hackers or on Reddit and you were just posting something there, a lot of text, like maybe... A five-minute read, something that took you an hour or two to write in that community, that is a value investment that people will value and understand as something that meaningfully contributes to their community without pulling them out of it. And that is how you embed yourself in a community. That is how you become an expert, somebody who's recognized as somebody who has something to say in a community. And then over time, you inform people what you're actually doing. I mean, the whole thing you've the whole time you've been doing something meaningful, which is adding value to the community, 
And now you're giving people the opportunity to reciprocate, to give you something in return for the value that you've added. And that could be either get going onto your blog or starting um, a beta uh, sign-up kind of situation with the people in that community. I have a, an, a, an example here because I've done this with one of my mentees. He's been um, in, in the education technology space and he's been very active on Reddit in a group for educators because he wanted to build tools for educators. And he was lurking for a long time. He was just helping, talking to people, sharing his opinion. And then a couple of weeks in, he said, okay, here, everybody, uh, listen up. I, I want to do something. I want to do an experiment. I need a couple people to help me. I want to do some kind of session be between me and you, and we can do some work together and just see how it works out. Um, there's, there's no strings attached. Obviously, this is just an experiment. I want to see if this is something that people would like to do. Can't go into specifics here, and I won't, but the idea was that he was organically reaching out to members of the community that he already had some reputation with. And lo and behold, people said, yeah, sure, let's do it. Let's set up a call. Let's let's just do this together for a couple hours. I also want to see if this is something valuable. And he went from there, right? He was in there for weeks, being part of a community, building reputation, and then he had people to work with. And that means you will need to spend time. You will need to spend time finding the community. You will need to spend time engaging, embedding yourself in the community and providing value in the community without necessarily immediately providing value to yourself. It's just kind of giving without expecting to take. Um, something that has worked pretty well for me, to be quite honest. Um, I only recently really understood that me providing a blog, writing every single week, providing this podcast, providing my newsletter, giving content out every single week has created a lot of momentum in my readership and my listenership to at some point give back to me because I've apparently given a lot without asking for anything. So when I then released my book two months ago, people just jumped at the opportunity to send me some money for something that I've done and also get a great book out of it, I guess. So this is the kind of leverage that you can build by creating and sharing without asking for anything in return. And over time, you will build relationships with these people. And it's the best kind of relationship you could build for your business because these people are actually engaged in the communities that they care about. And nobody will be more honest, more brutally honest often, and more supportive with somebody who wants to elevate the community through a tool, a software tool, a SaaS, a mobile app, whatever you're building, than the people who care about the tribe. So finding those people, building a reputation, engaging with them, and then later, at some later point, getting them to work with you, that is my advice on how you can find these people outside of your personal zone of people that you already know. Find the community, find a water cooler where they hang out, and slowly start engaging, and you will find the people that will eventually not only turn into your first customers, they will also turn into your best customers. Because they won't just stick around with the product because they know where it came from. They will yell about it within the community, giving you more opportunity to openly talk about it. Because if everybody mentions the name of your business, and that was the case for us with Feedback Panda, people were just talking about Feedback Panda all the time in the online teaching community. So we could just say, yeah, with the creators of Feedback Panda, do you have any questions? Or you have a question? Well, let's respond. We are the people behind the project. And the moment the name is established in the community, you will also be established in the community as somebody who built something for those people to use. So I would definitely um, recommend embedding yourself in a community to find those people. I hope this answers your questions. 
and thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Arvid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-A-H-L. And you can check out the blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. You can find my book, Zero to Sold, at zerotosoldbook.com. If you have any questions about this episode, reach out on Twitter or send an email to arvid at thebootstrapfounder.com. If you want to support me in the Bootstrap Founder Podcast, that'd be great. Either buy a book or please leave a review and a rating. Um by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. It'll help other founders and founders to be to find the podcast and learn more about starting, running, and selling the bootstrap businesses. So thank you very much for listening today and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.